Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce Totoris. With us is James Norman, a veteran business journalist who was with Business Week magazine, then became senior editor at Forbes magazine. His Fostergate story, which Forbes refused to publish, exposed rampant corruption at high levels of the U.S. government, secretive bank spying activities of the National Security Agency, and wholesale trafficking in state secrets. His trying day book, The Oil Card, Global Economic Warfare in the 21st Century, details the history of governmental oil price manipulation for geopolitical and strategic purposes in bringing down the Soviet Union, then trying unsuccessfully to rein in Chinese economic ascendance. Jim and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Good to be here. You bet. Uh, thank you, Jim, very, very much for, for coming on. You know, we're going to tell a story here that, you know, a lot of people haven't heard. And I uh, just really appreciate you coming on and, and telling the story because uh, it is something that people need to hear. I mean, it was uh, so exciting. I was, uh, you know, out on, out on the internet and running a conspiracy theory research list. And, and all of a sudden, Jim, along with uh, Orland, Jay Orland Grab. Uh, who was a professor at Wharton at, at one point in time and, and wrote the first uh, textbook on derivatives, started this Fostergate series online. And they started telling this story about oh, computers and, and this stuff off computers. And they were sending uh, envelopes to uh, people in Congress and people in Congress were quitting and everything. And and it, I mean, it was just a really exciting time because they were releasing something every day. And within these reports, there was uh, Swiss uh, bank uh, numbers uh, of, of accounts of people. I would sit there as a, like a, a kid in a candy store because I was into, you know, looking at conspiracy theory. And every day this, this thing would drop. And it was just very, I mean, it ended up with Jay Orland being on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl in a bar in Reno, okay? And it was just a very exciting time. And so, Jim, now, how, how did this happen? Can, can, can you give us some backstory here, please? This story says so much about the state of journalism in this country, then and now. I don't really fancy myself to be an investigative reporter. I'm a business reporter, straightaway business reporter, but I did tend to focus on highly complex uh, transactions, particularly money laundering, bankruptcy fraud, uh, especially around the oil business from my time with Business Week. I was the Houston bureau chief there in the 1980s. So oil was a big focus. In early 1995, I wrote a cover story for Forbes magazine that detailed a uh, oil for arms money laundering process involving weapon shipments to Iraq, which at the time kicked a lot of ass because nobody had really taken it apart that way, analyzed it and shown just how the money moved, how US oil men and US bankers were involved in basically helping the US government arm Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. Actually, later on in my career, I actually went back to that topic and 
wrote a story which basically exposed the later UN oil for food money laundering bribery process um, that was investigated by the uh, Paul Volcker Commission. So anyway, in early 95, we wrote this story about the Iraq oil business. And afterwards, I got a call from a fellow in Washington named Bill Hamilton, who runs a little software company called uh, Inslaw. Inslaw had made had, had done some uh, proprietary customization of a public domain database management system that came to be known as Promise, which stood for Prosecutors Management System. It was designed for use by the Justice Department. Hamilton called me up and said, "You know, I've got a beef with the government. They stole they they stole my proprietary parts of the software, and they've spread this software all around the place. And guess what?" Some of the software got sold to Iraq along with the arms shipments by Carlos Cardone, the Chilean arms merchant, who I just written about. I said, well, that's interesting. I, I thought it was just bombs and uh, guns. No, 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 it was actually uh, very sophisticated tracking software that went to Iraq's uh, intelligence community. Turns out this stuff had been marketed all over the globe to uh, friend and foe intelligence organizations, law enforcement agencies, uh, assassination squad managers in Guatemala, all over the place. And a whole cadre of uh, bad guys had been used to market this stuff, including Robert Maxwell, the publisher, whose daughter is now on trial in New York for uh, uh, pedophile trafficking. Earl Bryan, who was a notorious a political intelligence operative who had all kinds of scams going, used to own FNN, which became CNBC, uh, owned UPI. He operated out of the Cabazon Indian Reservation in uh, India, California, which was a favorite uh, operating point for uh, covert intelligence activities because it had, in effect, sovereign immunity and they could get away with all kinds of stuff there. So this software was being moved all over the place. Uh, from a business story, I was very intrigued by it because Hamilton had mentioned that one of the applications he heard that this software had been adapted for was international wire transfer surveillance through uh, money center banks and wire transfer clearinghouses. As in, and this was an elaborate, huge program initiated during the Reagan administration under what became known as the follow the money strategy, mainly for uh, going after the Soviet Union to take down their funding sources, steal their money, find who they were paying off. It became a really big deal. And one of the companies that Hamilton said he suspected had been involved in uh, customizing and implanting the software abroad was a Arkansas company called Systematics. I'd never heard of them before. So I started doing some research on it. And after a, a little bit of work on the internet, I came across this bibliography of Systematics press releases that somebody had put up on the internet, just listing all of the global money center banks that this company was bragging about having implanted software or, or 
they didn't put it that way, said, we have sold our software systems to the banks in Macau and Singapore and Paris and London, blah, 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 all over the, all over the globe. It was a very curious accumulation of stuff. And I said, well, who put this together and why? Turns out it was a fellow named J. Orland Graby. His email was on there somewhere. And so I contacted him, talked to him a little bit. Turns out this guy, he was a former Wharton finance professor. He'd written the standard textbook on international financial markets. The guy was brilliant. He had left Wharton and had started his own, uh, well, it was a foreign exchange uh, management system for big money center banks and uh, investment banks to help them price derivatives. Very kind, it's, this is financial rocket science, but Orlin was right up there. It turns out he also had some experience in cryptology, he did some contract work for the NSA. He had a bee in his bonnet about systematics because the spook world, the National Security Agency or the CIA, hard to tell who's what at any given time, had come to his company, FX was the name of his company, and said, we wanna put our people into your company so that they can spy on these banks that are your customers, just like we did with systematics. So Orlin, who's a, I guess you would call him a libertarian at heart, he just, he bridles at this kind of government surveillance, interference management. He started doing his own research on systematics. And so he just started putting these little crumbs out on the internet about systematics. Well, I got a hold of this thing and started looking at it and said, holy smokes, there's, there's not just smoke, there's a lot of fire here. Something big is going on. Well, at the same time, Bill Hamilton from Inslaw had said, you know, we've triangulated this stuff a number of different ways with intelligence sources of our own, that in fact, the intelligence community purloined the software and has spread it all over the place. It was being used for tracking uh, um, sonar tracks and the sounds of submarines. It was being used for, uh, I, I, I just can't even begin to list all these. The reason, and the reason for that is because this software was one of the early, I guess you would say a Windows-based type of object-based software system. It was very easy to use and it was very customizable. And it would allow you to organize all kinds of data, search it, um, slice and dice it. It was exactly the kind of thing that you need for large complex financial tracking systems. So the government grabbed this stuff and ran with it. Well, among the, Intelligence sources that Hamilton had come up with was this fella, he uh, taught his name was Charles Hayes, Charles Hayes, who he warned me is a very irascible character. He is kind of a good old boy, operated out of a motel in Nancy, Kentucky. Hamilton was convinced he was serious former CIA during, um, I didn't want to say dirty tricks guy. He was a, a basically a plumber for the CIA. One of his assignments among the many had been to actually break into foreign intelligence computer systems, either physically or digitally, steal all their data. And <laughs> uh, he, he just had quite a reputation within the intelligence community. And he had, he had very little patience for journalists. I didn't expect he was going to talk to me, but I think he took pity on me because I was just very dogged about this, tracked him down, went down to Nancy, talked to him, listened to his bullshit. You know, half of what he said was just total kind of, he didn't know what exactly was true, but you knew that 
even if 80% of it was bullshit, there was 20% of truth in it because this guy knew what he was talking about. And he actually asked me to have Oral and Gravy get in touch with him. He wanted to talk to Gravy because he's told me that he was the head of, not head of, he was basically the front man, the spokesman for a clandestine, I guess you would say renegade computer hacker cracker team of current or former intelligence community computer jockeys who were busting into computers all over the place. And mainly their job, they had decided since the US government was not able to crack down on the corruption within the government, these guys were gonna do their own thing. They're gonna go through all these bank accounts, track people's money, find out where it came from, establish the connections of corruption, and then somehow uh, get these people out of the government. And they had initially hoped to do it through the front door by going to the Justice Department and the legal system. They find out that won't work. All these agencies are utterly corrupt themselves. So they had developed their own system of basically assembling dossiers on all these people. This would be members of Congress, members of the administration, corporate CEOs, big shots. And the way to handle it was to assemble, you know, multi-inch thick manila folders of uh, damning and incriminating evidence on these people and walk it around to these people in their offices in Washington and say, you know, you have uh, two days to decide whether you're gonna resign or announce you're not going to run for office again. Uh, or else uh, this stuff's going to get released. They began this in the late 1980s, he said. And if you look at the trend of retirements, uh, resignations, kind of intentional losses of people in Congress and the Senate from the late 80s to the late 90s, you'll see uh, there's a huge ramp up, large turnover, it kind of peaked in 92. They're still going strong in 94, 96. These guys were having significant effect. And Orlin could speak language with Hayes about the computer side of it. Orlin, over time, became rock solid convinced that Hayes was legit, that he knew what he was talking about, this stuff was really going on. And Orlin had his own sources in Washington who, apart from Hayes, was corroborating all this stuff that was uh, being told to us here. So what happened, and, and this was just, I would say, is a God-given confluence of me, a, a, a dogged but naive reporter, Orlin Graby, the computer brain, Charles Hayes, the, the um, unorthodox uh, intelligence operative, and his crew of the so-called fifth column, that had a hold of a Cray computer somewhere. <laughs> he, he had his believing it was in a truck floating around the country somewhere, an air-cooled Cray computer they'd somehow gotten from Clark Air Force Base. Who knows if, if that stuff is technically true, but the fact was these guys were sifting through vast, vast amounts of data from supposedly absolutely secure banks. And they were not only finding information, but when they would find accounts belonging to US government figures where they could confirm that the money was ill-gotten, 
they would actually simulate a withdrawal transaction, which they were able to mimic, and transfer the money back to a holding account at the US Treasury. <laughs> they claim they collected more than $2 billion from hundreds, hundreds of high-level people, none of whom could say we was robbed. All they had to do to get the money back would just be go say, yeah, that's my money, <laughs> give it back to me. Nobody claimed it. And so the money just sat there in escrow for use by the CIA. Well, this, <clears throat> I started writing this story for Forbes. I was still a mainstream journalist at that point. And I, for months and months, I struggled to uh, understand the story, how it could work, corroborate as much as I could. and after months of this, we'd actually put together a whole matrix of corroborative sources on this. You know, the Forbes at that time was a real fact-checked organization. If I wrote a story, it would be turned over to another reporter there who would go through the line, go through the story word by word, line by line, number by number, and make me show solid sourcing for every assertion we made there. As a result, Forbes never got sued. I mean. <laughs> Our conclusions might be wrong, but our facts were always right. And this story went through, had not one, but two, and I think maybe three fact checkers assigned to it, all of whom agreed, this story is solid. There's no question that this story is solid. Uh, and the focus of the story, again, was on the whole bank spying angle. But in the process of that, we came across this landmine, which was the Vince Foster story. In the midst of all of this, we find among the people who had one of these Swiss accounts, had millions of dollars in it, was Vince Foster, the uh, deceased deputy White House counsel, former uh, senior partner at the Rose Law Firm in Arkansas, Hillary Clinton's partner, lover, apparently at some point, her handler on behalf of the National Security Agency. Turns out Foster had a long reputation. He's spook business basically as a handler for uh, NSA stuff with systematics and other stuff through Jackson Stevens and his uh, Stevens investment banking empire. Stevens had a bunch of other stuff going on too in the political realm. Stevens had actually been deeply involved in taking over financial general bank shares in Washington, DC, which owned Riggs uh, National Bank uh, repository for most of the trust money in Washington a window into the banking activities of everybody in Washington. Uh, Stevens got control of it with the help of uh, former head of Saudi intelligence. The plan was to bring in systematics to run all of the back office work in that bank. The SEC intervened and said, no, we don't like this deal, go away. And so they backed off. Hillary Clinton was actually the attorney of record for systematics in that case. Later on, uh, Stevens eventually did get control of the bank by uh, kind of a backdoor means. Clark Clifford, former Secretary of Defense, Robert Altman, big deal Washington lawyer, they had gotten in there and they, they set up the deal with Stevens. Stevens got control of it. Systematics ended up running the back office there. And you got to realize the guts of a bank these days is the computer systems that uh, move the money around. And Systematics had built a big business as an outsource data processing system for all you know, many, many rural banks, including a bunch of small banks in Arkansas. When you do that, 
you have the ability to move money around without the bank even knowing it. This is where the connection to Mina Arkansas, the global drug trade, arms trafficking comes in because that business under the auspices really of Bill Clinton as governor in Arkansas was generating tens of millions of dollars a day. Huge amounts of money floating around. It had to get moved around some way. It had to get laundered. It had to get turned into legitimate banking accounts somewhere that people could use. Systematics was the brains of that operation. When I confronted Systematics about this for when I was at Forbes, the proverbial shit hit the fan. I mean, uh, Systematics had actually gone to Forbes, bought a one-page ad there for I don't know how much money, just to basically call off the dogs to get this guy Norman off their back. And my editor, Jim Michaels, who was a former OSS veteran, rumored to have been the cleanup guy who was there at the death of, uh, or of Gandhi in India to, uh, you know, call off the dogs and, uh, you know, move along, folks, nothing to see here. He, he smelled rats all over the place in this story. He told me to keep working on it, even though the senior management of Forbes wouldn't touch it. I didn't quite know why at the time. I found out later that the, the main reason was that among the high level government officials who had offshore bank accounts that had been raided by the fifth column was none other than Casper Weinberger, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, who later left government uh, under a cloud after he supposedly lied to Congress. Steve Forbes gave him basically a no-show job at Forbes as chairman of Forbes, which effectively set up Forbes for his disastrously failed uh, effort to run for president of the United States. That's how Steve kind of got his ticket punched, by giving a place for a Casper to hang his head. Well, and all this stuff was coming together at the same time. In 95, 95 is a very tense year. So because of the Casper Weinberger connection, Forbes said, we're not going to run this story. But Jim, we'll let you publish it somewhere else. I think knowing full well that the intelligence community was never going to let this story see the light of day. They knew that I was up against a brick wall here, and, I, and they knew I was going to find that out. As it turned out, you know, I shot this story around to New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, various other publications. They look at it. They knew it was solid. They were just scared shitless about it. And they, their handlers in the intelligence community wouldn't let them touch it either. Somehow I've got connected with a, uh, it was kind of like trying to, a no-name publishing outfit out of Hammond, Indiana. A guy down there who was publishing kind of a uh, Media Bypass. Media Bypass magazine, yeah, which I, I had never heard of. I thought it was it was, it was a really kind of a trashy publication. I mean, it, it was just journalistically utterly disreputable. <laughs> but I realized this story somehow had to get into print in some kind of a even halfway legitimate place where it could then get some kind of recognition. So I got it published in Media Bypass. And Orland then came along and said, look, Jim, uh, good on you. I'll help you out. I'm going to start promoting this on my webpage. Now, Orland Graby at that time had set up, I think for this purpose of promoting this story, what was called the homepage of J. Orland Graby. It was a kind of a bare bones uh, webpage, but it was actually uh, became the model for Matt Drudge. 
when Matt Drudge came along, he basically copied Orland's style, everything, you know, the, the periodic daily updates, a new page with uh, all kinds of a collection of stuff from the mainstream media, and a lot of non-mainstream stuff that was really interesting. But so Orland launched himself on a relentless, virtually daily routine of publishing updates on the story and, and using this Fostergate story as a kind of a Christmas tree on which he could hang a whole bunch of ornaments of his own research and thinking uh, that explicated so many elements of this whole murky, shadowy government spying industry. And he, he went into it in very entertaining and very informative detail. This is part one of Chris's conversation with Jim Norman. Part two follows in episode 73.